Well, good morning. My name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, I would love the opportunity to meet you. If you're joining us online, just grateful that you're with us too. Uh, I'm going to ask again this week if we can turn the house lights up a bit because I would love to see the faces of the people in the room that I'm speaking with. And it gives you the chance to actually see your Bibles if you open them up with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Nice segue, eh? You like that? That was good. As you're doing that, I'd just like to pray again. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that the steadfast love of the Lord never changes. Your mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. They're new for us this morning, which is good because we're in need of your mercy, God. Great is your faithfulness. Help us to be faithful to you and to each other. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, many of you might know that one of my hobbies is road cycling. And each year, if I can, I like to sign up for at least one road race. And trust me, I'm not in it to win it because I don't come anywhere close. But I sign up because they give me a goal and it's a lot of fun. And um, yeah, my goal when I sign up for these things is to finish the race in a certain amount of time, to beat my previous record. If I've raced in this race before or to finish near the top of my peers. And there's this thing in cycling called the peloton. And it's crucial if I'm going to achieve my goal. Uh, shout out to any of those back there who might be interested in the Indy 500 that's happening today as well. They have a similar thing there. It's where the group of cars, but in my case, the group of cyclists ride together. See, they, they each take turns at the front of this group, leading for small amounts of time. And then in the cyclist's case, they rotate towards the back and then up towards the front again. And the reason they do this is that in, by riding together in a pack, you are way more effective. You can ride way faster for way longer in the peloton than you can by yourself. And when you're in the middle of one of these things, it's incredible. You feel like you are barely having to push the pedals and you are just flying along. And you see, you, we can even see like birds in nature doing the same thing, right? They fly in that V formation in order to reduce drag, in order to work more efficiently together. It's the way that they're able to make their long migration journeys together that would be impossible if a single bird were to try to do it alone. And that's what I've discovered about the peloton, right? The peloton as a part of it, supporting it, taking my turn in the lead, in the middle and at the back, right? It helps me to pursue my goal of finishing the race and doing it in a great time. But if I were to pull out and to try and do it alone, then there is no way that I'm going to reach my goal and I even put finishing at jeopardy. 
Being part of the group is essential to riding a good race. It's essential to finishing it. And that's also true when it comes for us to following Jesus. Following Jesus not only means that we have faith in him, but we are making every effort to live our lives faithfully, following his teachings and his ways until we die or until he returns. That's the finish line. That's our aim. That's the goal. But just like a bike race or birds migrating or the Indy 500, we cannot do it alone. It has to be done with others who are pursuing the same thing. We are called to pursue life in Christ together. Let's read Ephesians 4. The Apostle Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope and you, when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Well, Paul begins this section by urging the Ephesians to live a life worthy of the calling they have received. It would be good for us to know what is the calling that they have received? Is it the calling to follow Jesus or is it something that's more specific? Yes, it's both. The calling the Ephesians have is to follow Jesus like all Christians are, to be obedient to him, and to pursue life in Christ. But it is more specific than that. It is the calling Paul has been talking about for the last three chapters. This is a point that we can easily miss, especially when we read certain translations of the Bible, like my NIV here, that don't include the word therefore at the beginning of this passage that should be there. Instead, it says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received read this way, 
we might think it's because Paul is a prisoner that he is urging the Ephesians that his imprisonment is the reason they are to live a worthy life. Or perhaps like Paul, the calling they have received is a calling to suffer. But this isn't it here. Here in chapter 4, Paul is continuing to talk about what he's been talking about in the first three chapters of Ephesians, summed up in chapter 3, verse 6. That through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That's their calling. And it's our calling as well. To faithfully follow Jesus together. Christians from different ethnic origins, different ages, different social standings, all drawn together through faith in one body, sisters and brothers in the same family of God, walking in faith with one another. We are called to pursue life in Christ together. But Paul is under no illusions that this is easy. It's the reason that he is in prison, advocating that the Gentiles are on equal footing with Jews. This is what landed him there. Also, when you bring together such a diverse group of imperfect people, you will no doubt struggle to keep the peace and have unity. Sarah alluded to this in her prayer about families, and the same thing is true with the family of God. Many of us know this about the church from personal experience, don't we? Nobody's too eager to cheer that one. But honestly, be a part of any church, any group of believers long enough, and there will be plenty of opportunities for discord and offending people. By the way, this isn't just unique to church. We're just expected to behave better because we know better. In fact, we know best, and best, his name is Jesus. But because discord can be prevalent in the church, Paul gives them instructions on how they are to live unified. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I have to say these are pretty lofty expectations that Paul has for them. Be Completely humble. Check. Be gent. I heard laughing when I said check. Siri, you doubt that I'm completely humble? And then now I see he's laughing over here too. Exactly. This is not easy. And Paul knows it's not easy. Paul's a realist, right? That's why he doesn't say, you know, uh, do this. He says, bear with one another, Right? When you say bear with each other or put up with each other, you know it's going to be difficult, right? Make every effort, not just try a little bit. Make every effort, right? Please, please, my children, they know that sound. Please get along with each other, right? But Paul can have these high expectations because as I said, our model for living is Jesus who showed us what is possible through living life dependent on the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has called you and I to humility, gentleness, and love. Jesus told his followers, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
We so often think that people will know we're Christians by so many other things, but forget the fact that Jesus says it's by loving each other that people will begin to know that we are his followers. But it's not easy. Paul tells us in Galatians the fruits of the Spirit, saying it is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's the things he wants us to put into practice here. So we must pursue unity together because that's what the Lord has commanded and we can only live unified if we are living by the power of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who gives us these fruits. But that power is what Paul told us to pray for last week, didn't he? Pray for power. He prayed for the congregation in Ephesians that they would have power. God's power that produces fruit in our lives. Not just for my own individual good, but for our collective good. For the sake of the unity that you and I have been called to have. But just in case the Ephesians or any of us start thinking that this is impossible because we're too different from one another to have this kind of unity, Paul erupts with a list in verses 4 to 6 of all of the things that they have in common. And what they have in common is far more significant than what sets them apart. And this is the truth for you and I too. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Thank you, God. See, we may have our differences, but if we share faith in Christ, then what we have in him is more significant than even the bond that is shared between parents and children, even the bond between siblings. The bond that we have in Jesus with other Christians is more significant than even the bond between blood relatives, between family members. Do you believe this? Jesus made this very point himself when he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. See, this is very important for us to understand because one, it should elevate our understanding and appreciation of the church. And when it comes to faith in Christ, Jesus becomes our top priority And the body of Christ, the community of faith, should be right up there with him. This is why the church needs to be a priority in the life of every believer. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you are a part of God's family. And we are to pursue life in Christ together. Paul then goes on to say that each of us in the family, we have received gifts of grace from Christ And then he quotes Psalm 68. And quite honestly, if you look at your Bibles, verses 7 to 10, they seem a little strange. He says, To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. 
What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It's a little confusing, isn't it? Now, quoting the Old Testament, an Old Testament text in order to make a point was not out of the ordinary for New Testament writers like Paul. They often looked to the Old Testament writings and in particular the Psalms and saw how they were fulfilled in Jesus. And so Jesus is the one who descended from heaven to earth and then ascended from earth back to heaven where he now sits enthroned above all. And the point of quoting this psalm is to show how these gifts that Jesus gives are a part of the great story of what Jesus has achieved. Originally, Psalm 68 was a part of a victory ode, which is a picture of a triumphant army leader returning to Jerusalem at the head of his followers after routing the enemy army and taking many captives or many prisoners. The victory procession would make its way to the Temple Mount to offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and the tribute or the money or treasure received by the victor from their vanquished foe and it's dedicated to God. And the tribute is referred to as gifts that the victor has received from men. See, by quoting this psalm here, Paul retells it now with Jesus as the victorious leader. Christ has conquered the enemy. He's conquered sin, death, and the devil. And rather than taking prisoners, Jesus has instead set people free from sin and death. And instead of collecting tribute from men and then dedicating it to God, Jesus gives gifts to people, to the men and women who have faith in him, to his church, whom he has dedicated to God. That's what the original readers would have understood, and that's pretty amazing. That Christ has conquered evil, and not only are we set free, but that we get gifts. So what are these gifts that Jesus gives us? Paul doesn't list them here. Instead, he names a few roles that some specific people in the church with specific gifts have. But why highlight these and not others? Is it because pastors and teachers are more important than the roles other people play in the church? Are they somehow special? No. I think Paul highlights these particular roles because he still has the same thing in mind, the unity of the church. And he wants this eclectic, diverse group of people to become one family. And this text indicates that one of the main reasons for roles like mine, pastor, one of the reasons we exist is to bring Christians from all different backgrounds together. Paul says, my job, along with the teachers, the apostles, the evangelists, and, and the prophets, is to equip Christ's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity. Pastors and teachers exist so that the body of Christ may be built up in order to reach unity. And what is this unity found in or what's it based on is it our common taste in music 
Or is it the fact that we all cheer for the same sports team? Go Bayern Munich, right? You're like, who is that? Perhaps it's the fact that we all have so much in common with everybody else here. Just take a look around and you realize, that's not it, Dave. Paul says that the unity that we're aiming for is unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Again, it's Christ and the things of his kingdom that followers are to center our lives around. And these are to become the common threads that bind you and I together. See, churches, they'll have problems if they start to look to other things to keep them unified. If we look to be unified over our style of worship or having a really nice building or very successful programs, if that's what we're hoping will keep you and I united, then unity, it's never going to happen. And I think that the devil loves to get us sidetracked and focused on these peripheral things rather than the gospel because he can just stand back and then watch us begin to unravel. I've seen churches who have even prioritized unity for unity's sake rather than unity in the gospel or unity in Jesus. And as a result, they have allowed compromise and false teaching to creep in because they're afraid to address it and they don't want anyone to leave. Rather, they just want everyone to just all get along, right? To be united. So instead of addressing these things because we don't want to offend anyone, they settle for a false sense of peace. And this is fatal for a church. You see, we're not called to just pursue life together. We are called to pursue life in Christ together. Life in Jesus. The life that is centered in and around Jesus and his gospel. Life based on his way and his word. And this can be really hard because Jesus, though he accepted and loved everyone, Jesus taught some really difficult things that he, as our Lord, expects his followers to do. He says in Matthew 5, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, just because Jesus loves and accepts everyone as they are does not mean that he wants to let us remain as we are. When you come to faith in Christ, he wants to transform you by his word and by his spirit. And he not only expects our allegiance, but also our active participation in our transformation, in growing and maturing in faith. This is what pursuing life in Christ is all about. And I know that personally, I have a long ways to go in maturing in Christ. I don't want to hear any amens after that. But friends, I'm also often shocked by what I hear from other people who've been following Jesus for a long time, how pervasive the teachings of this world and our society has influenced them with doctrines of, you name it, materialism, individualism, ideologies of tolerance, which, by the way, 
Canada's view of tolerance is so inferior to Jesus' command to his followers to love their neighbor and to love their enemy. Love demands so much more than tolerate. I think we need to ask ourselves, who is it that we're following? Are we following some politician, some podcaster, some preacher, some social media influencer? Are we following the beliefs of society? Are we even following beliefs of our own good intentions? Or are we following Jesus? The Apostle Peter said in Acts 4, salvation's found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. When Jesus said some really difficult things to his disciples and a whole bunch of them left, he looked at his apostles and said, are you guys going to leave too? And even though they didn't understand Jesus and he was, said really difficult things to them, Peter said to them, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. So if it's Jesus we're following, then it's to him and his word that we must submit and grow in the knowledge of. In Romans 12, Paul says, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. In verse 14 of this morning's passage, Paul incentivizes maturing in faith. He says, hey, if we do this, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. But I think if you read between the lines of what Paul is writing here, we also see there is a real strong warning of what can happen if we never mature in faith and in the knowledge of Christ. You see, a lack of maturity causes people to be blown back and forth by every wind of teaching and clever arguments like babies on a boat in the middle of a storm. Picture that in your mind's eye. A newborn on a boat in the middle of a storm. I don't think Paul could have painted a more terrifying and vulnerable picture of what can happen to the faith of an individual who never matures. You know, I know many Christian parents who worry about their children heading off to post-secondary after high school with concerns that their children may not be as mature or as solid in their relationship with Christ as they hope. And these parents fear that their child will stop following Jesus because some clever university professor or fellow philosophy classmate might convince their child that Christianity and the morals of the Bible, they're just some antiquated fables. But Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Salvation is found in no one else. So while we together still have the opportunity to help develop the faith of the children and teenagers of this church, we must do so. Jesus is far more important than whatever sports or hobbies our kids enjoy. Growing in the faith is so much more important for our children's future than even getting good grades in school. You see, maturing in Christ, it has eternal consequences. 
And as parents, we have to prioritize life in Christ for our children. But friends, we cannot do it alone. And this is one of the reasons we need one another here. Why we need the community of faith. Why we need our our youth leaders. Why we need our Sunday school teachers, right? We need each other to help raise up the next generation to be lifelong, resilient followers of Christ. And it's not just for the next generation. We also need help for ourselves in order to be lifelong followers of Christ. To be resilient. I need your help. We need each other in order to keep maturing, in order to stay on track and to stay faithful to Jesus and the gospel. We are to pursue life in Christ and we need to do it together. So how do we do this? How do we pursue this life that Jesus is calling us to chase after in unity with one another? First, we have to be committed to being together. And the commitment to togetherness, it needs to be more than just showing up here on a Sunday morning. It certainly includes that, but it it has to go deeper. We need to to be a part of some, some small group of some sort, whether it's a Bible study or serving with other people in ministry, or maybe you have a coffee crew you connect with in the foyer after the service. But we just can't go it alone. And we just, popping in on Sunday mornings and skirting out during the benediction, it's not enough. You can't build relationships with people in that little of a commitment. When the author of Hebrews encouraged them to continue to meet together, keep meeting with one another, don't neglect it as some are in the habit of doing. I don't think that they were just saying this so they could hear, you know, a Sunday morning sermon. I think that they realized that It's the community of faith that keeps us going. There are a million excuses that we can have of why we don't get more involved or won't commit to more within the community of faith, but we cannot go it alone in pursuing life in Christ. I remember there was one bicycle race where I started out really well and I was with the Peloton and we were just flying. And then all of a sudden when I shifted gears, my chain popped off. And I have never gotten off my bike, put the chain back on, and got back on that fast in my life. Like, it was like seconds. But it was too late. By the time I looked up, the group was gone. I couldn't even see them anymore. And there was no chance I had to catch up to them. It was too late. And we can't do it alone. Fortunately for me, another group ended up coming along that I could hop on with. But they didn't come along till an hour later. That hour where I was riding by myself, I tell you, I struggled. There was times where I felt like giving up. And that's more true for faith than it is for cycling. On our own, we will only struggle. And so we need to commit to being together. Second, We need to commit to truth in love or commit to grace and truth. Paul says in verse 15 of this passage, instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. 
So we need to commit ourselves in growing in understanding of God's word and obeying it, no matter how difficult and how countercultural it is. And we need to hold one another accountable to it, but always speaking in love. And this is one of the benefits, even if you don't see it as a benefit, of being a part of a church community. Accountability. But speaking in love. See, there's a huge difference between correcting someone when it's done in love and when it's not. And I have heard people say that they are doing it in love, but the person who's receiving it can't tell it's loving in any way, shape, or form. So if you are speaking truth to someone, can they tell, the person that you're speaking with, can they tell that you are for them? Can they tell that you love them? They better be able to. Preston Sprinkle, one of my favorite theologians, he says, if you get the truth right, but love wrong, you're still wrong. Paul's exhortation for us to speak the truth and love to each other It's an expectation. It's not optional. This is just what followers of Jesus do for one another. For Paul, there is no way Christ followers would avoid speaking the truth to each other or correcting one another. There's no avoiding speaking the truth to a fellow believer because you want to maintain the good feelings you have between each other or you just want to preserve your friendship. That's not love. That's self-preservation. There is no truth without love, and there is no love without truth. If you try and present one without the other, you have not presented the real thing, only some cheap knockoff that will fail. We must do our best to present real truth in genuine love. And not only should we be willing to speak it to others, but we should also be prepared to hear truth and love Spoken to us as well. Yikes. Maybe this is where we need a double portion of that humility that Paul was talking about back in verse 2. Yet I know for me, some of the most helpful experiences of my life have come when people who care about me have spoken difficult words to me, confronting me about wrong things that I have said or done. And I don't believe that they relished doing it. Yet they loved me too much to avoid letting me continue down that wrong path. Their courage and humility demonstrated a great and sincere care for me. Proverbs 27 says that wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. See, this type of accountability It's essential for maturing in Christ. And I believe it's also essential for any healthy relationships that we have. And so we need to be willing to speak truth and love to others, but also we need to be prepared to listen to it spoken to ourselves as well. Probably we need to be prepared to listen to it spoken to us first before we start becoming the leading the charge to speaking it to other people. Finally, to pursue life in Christ together, we need every single one of us working together, just like that 
bicycle peloton, right? Each of us using those grace gifts given to us by Jesus in order to serve one another. Paul highlights a few of those gifts here, but all Christians have gifts that are to be used to build up the body. The Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 4, each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. You see, it's only when each of us are using our gifts to serve one another that collectively we can grow and be built up that we will reach this unity that God desires for us to have. And so let me ask you, are you using your gifts to serve the church? I want to urge all of us, like Paul does, live a life worthy of the calling. Our calling to Jesus, our calling to faithfully follow him alongside each other. Let us pursue life in Christ, but let us pursue it together. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your great love for us. Jesus, thank you through faith in you. Not only do we have salvation and eternal life, but that we have been brought into the family of God. Puts a whole new spin on this family day weekend, Lord. Thank you that we get to celebrate uh, being a part of this family. Thank you that we get to care for one another. We get to mourn with those who mourn. We get to rejoice when, when others are rejoicing about something. Thank you that we are not alone when we are with you, Lord. God, I just pray that you would strengthen us, help us as we continue to pursue maturing in our faith. Give us grace and mercy for one another. And I pray that you just continue to make Calvary Baptist into the, the church that you are calling us to be. Help us to love you and to trust you. And we pray these things in Christ's name.